guys in search of an argument. I'm Jim Gentilly. I am with my co-host, John Heinz. Hi, John. Hi, Jim. And Peggy Bennett. Hi, Peggy. Hi, Jim. And our guest on this Fortnite's edition of the podcast is the inscrutable, ineffable, wonderful Alex Berger. Alex Berger is the co-executive producer of the hit NBC series, blind spot and we are probably going to spend the entire time alex trying to explain to john heinz what it means to be a co-executive producer of a television show this is the driving force behind this interview because we've had john and i've had this discussion 50 times and i've tried to explain it to him and he seems to retain nothing of what i said but maybe if you explain it to him alex he will understand it I also wanted to mention that in addition to being the co-executive producer of the hit NBC series, Blindspot, Alex is a former high school and college debater, high school for the Georgetown Day School, where he suffered through the world's worst high school debate coach, and college for Dartmouth, where if I'm not mistaken, and even if I am, I'm going to say it anyway, Alex and his partner won the Copeland Award as the best team of the college debate season one year. And he's also the proud husband of our friend Susan and parent of two young ones who you may hear screaming in the background throughout the podcast. Hi, Alex. Well, hello, Jim. Thank you for that wonderful introduction, but I'm going to mostly focus on the fact that the first word you said about me was inscrutable, which is all I'm going to remember from the rest of this podcast. Right, which means no one really understands you, Alex. I want to say uh, also... And this is perhaps the thing that makes Alex the most inscrutable is that he actually has listened to most of the episodes of this podcast, which makes me think that being the co-executive producer of the hit NBC series Blindspot doesn't involve a full amount of work if he has time to waste listening to this podcast. Is that true, Alex? Well, if there's one important fact to know about living in Los Angeles and working in television, it's that I have a 50-minute commute every day. So I listen to your podcast and many others, and in fact, generally every week run out of podcasts to listen to. So always taking uh, recommendations for more. So so you listen to podcasts while you're driving back and forth to work? I do, but as a former debater, I do something uh, that is only a, a debater could do. I listen to podcasts on 2x or 2.5x speed. Uh, so actually, it sounds like you guys are talking very slowly right now because I typically listen to you at double or, or two and a half speed. Really? You listen to the podcast at, at double speed? Yes. yes. You get twice as much, uh, twice as much content. You've been too far removed from debate. That's how I listen to books. Yeah. I did not. I that is that's cool. Yeah, I'm a 1.25 person or 1.5 person more than a 2.0 person. It's very basic, John. Yeah, but I only do one and a half. Is 2.5? Is that the fastest you can speed it, it up? Depends on the podcast. It depends on the podcast and who's speaking. Uh, the problem becomes you three speak at different speeds, so it gets very difficult to listen to you. John, I think we should figure out a way that our podcast can be listened to at 3.0 because then we would be in the next generation of. So John Heights recently found out, Alex, that there's like 1,200 people that have downloaded our podcast, which I think means that basically 1,100 have done it by accident. But now he is concerned about what we can do to please the 1,200 people and to grow that number. So Alex, since you listen to the podcast, what can we do to please our listeners and grow the number of listeners? Interesting question. I guess talk faster so I can't listen to it at 2x speed. Uh, no, I love the podcast. I it's, I want to. It's one of my favorite listens. I love the varied topics. I think you guys delve into uh, all very uh, manner of topics, and and I, I say keep doing what you're doing. Grow it. Uh, by the next time I'm on the podcast, you'll have like uh, 1,250. Because more yeah, and more at least. people are accidentally downloading us. Alex, what does the co-executive producer of Blind Spot do? All co-executive producer means is television titles are sort of like military ranks in the sense that you start at the a pretty set level, which is called staff writer. And over the years, you build up level to level. So after the year after you're a staff writer, you're a story editor and then executive story editor. And then it goes co-producer, et cetera, et cetera, until executive producer when you're at the the top of the show. So co-executive producer just means you are the one level below executive producer on a show. Um, and you know, in my role on Blindspot, I do a lot of different things. I help with the generation of all the stories. Um, I write scripts. I uh, sometimes go on set to produce episodes. 
Um, we all, as a group, will read everybody's scripts and give notes. Uh, I do a lot of post-production. Uh, and so it kind of it can vary based on the type of show. On other shows, you're just writing scripts if you're the co-executive producer. And in other, other shows, you're doing a lot more. It just kind of depends on how a given show is organized. Um, and then I, the other thing is <clears throat> certain shows organize it a little bit more hierarchically, where if you're a co-executive producer, you have a lot more say and sway. And if you're a staff writer, your job is basically to sit quietly and um, just pitch new ideas all the time and, and do a lot of research. Um, a lot of shows are a lot more egalitarian than that, and it's sort of a best idea wins, and whoever has the right uh, thing to contribute to a given episode can, can sort of win the day if their idea is right. Alex, what the thing just jumping into my head is are, 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 you're suggesting that there's loyalty in Hollywood? That's what, that's the most surprising thing of what I'm hearing. It sounds like there's like a career path in it and that there's actual loyalty and that it's not the kind of free-for-all, Wild West, um, competitive, hyper-competitive environment I thought it was. It can be cutthroat. But I mean, the, 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 the bumps that I'm talking about at a very basic level are almost contractually guaranteed. So if you're on a show for a, f a full season and then you make it to the next season, you're guaranteed to jump a level, typically. The trouble comes if you're going sort of show to show. Sometimes you end up not being able to climb as quickly as, as other uh, if you're within one show. So you'll see people who you know started as a assistant, a researcher on like a show like Scandal, and then by the time the show's off the air, they're co-executive producers or even executive producers, and they've only been on one show just because if they stick around for long enough, you just kind of climb through the ranks. Whereas there's other people who've been around for fifteen or twenty years and have a little bit of a slower path to the top. Go ahead, Peg. Kind of were answered my question, but I want to know about you personally. How did you get? To me, that sounds like a big job. So, did you have to go all those steps to start as a assistant and then to elevate you to this? Yeah, I did. I, I had a pretty um, roundabout route to get where I was. I actually came out to Hollywood um, with two friends from uh, Jim's high school debate team, um, uh, who the three of us sort of stumbled into an opportunity to pitch a TV show about debate. Uh, which we ended up calling um, appropriately master debaters, uh, because if you're a former debater and you're doing a TV show, you're almost uh, legally obligated to use that pun. Um, and we did that show for a couple of years, which was a comedy debating show where people would come on and debate funny topics. And the three of us were hosts of the show and we were uh, editors and producers and, and writers and um, sort of did everything. It was like almost like our graduate school. Um, and that show ran for a couple of years and I also, um, it was for National Lampoon and I ended up working for National Lampoon as one of the magazine editors. And then I sort of made the jump to working in sort of, uh, bigger production television and took a job basically, yeah, as an assistant on a show. I was a researcher and assistant on a show called Commander in Chief, where Gina Davis played the, the extremely novel concept of the first female president, which at the time actually did seem pretty, uh, still, bold. still novel in the United States of America, Alex. Yes, exactly. And then I ended up getting to be promoted sort of after that and, and had a couple false starts here and there and a couple of times where I thought I was going to get a break and didn't and a couple of times where I got very lucky breaks. Um, and I guess if you talk to enough people who work in Hollywood, that's kind of a unifying theme is that it's never quite a straight line. The conventional wisdom that they say to people who are moving to Hollywood is if you can think of anything else to do, do it because writing and producing and acting are so hard. But thankfully, I have no other marketable skills, so I had nowhere else to go. So do you study this? I did not study film. Um, I actually was a philosophy major oh, nice. um, <clears throat> at Dartmouth and um, basically the closest thing I could find to debate. But my high school friends were moving out here and one of them said that he was going to try his hand at writing. And I thought, well, if he's going to go out and try it, I'm going to try it with him and just kind of stumbled into it. But I mostly learned by doing. I mean, I learned by writing and making mistakes and I learned by writing books and I learned by watching and sort of breaking down my favorite shows um, and, you know, dissecting what makes them work and and mostly just uh, learning by making mistakes and then uh, not making that same mistake again. So is the employer in this scenario as you're moving up the studio? What's the term? Yes. So I'm employed by the studio. the studio that you're employed by, Alex. Oh, I will. This I'm getting a it. rewrite. We're burying the lead. Go ahead. I'm giving the general answer first, and then I'll tell you for me. Typically, the way it works is you work for a given show. So if you're working on, you know, let's just say I was working on The Mentalist, which was my previous job. You work on that show until the show is done, and then you're out of a job. And so on Blindspot, on season one, I was working for Blindspot. So my employer was Warner Brothers Television, who produces Blindspot, who actually also produced The Mentalist. I then changed the structure of my contract, where I now have what's called an overall deal, which means that I now work for Warner Brothers full-time over a two-year contract. So if Blindspot uh, got canceled, I would stay in the employee of Warner Brothers, and they would either put me on another show or just have me develop pilots, and then... 
while I'm doing Blindspot, I'm also developing pilots for them as well. That kind of loyalty is almost quaint. That's fantastic. It, it's it's called a job. You know, they're paying him and he does work, John. Do you understand how that... Yeah, do you have to like it? You don't have to like it. If you think your show is garbage, yeah. what do you do? You oh, just are you trying it? to get him to say that he thinks his show is garbage, Peg? I'm actually, you know, uh, not even just saying this because it's being recorded. I've been very fortunate to work on shows that I generally like. Oh, that's good. For me, I always use the analogy of it's a little bit like school in the sense that you're taking a class and getting to study. In this case, it's the characters and dynamics and themes of a given show for an extended period of time. And I come to work every day and talk about those characters and themes in new and interesting ways every day with new and interesting people. So I don't have to like every aspect of the show that I'm on the same way that I like the previous show. Each show exercises a new muscle and a new set of ideas. But that's what I like about it is that when I get bored with one, then I move on to the next one. And then um, it sort of um, constantly stays fresh. That's good. You're lucky, I think. I don't know how folks who are like on, for example, like Law & Order for 15 years, that seems like it would get very tiring. Obviously, it's very stable and and extremely lucrative. But, um, you know, I've liked being able to, to do a bunch of different shows and kind of explore them each as they come. For years, Alex, there's a stereotype, there was a stereotype that a bunch of people who wrote for network television were just, you know, were very self-loathing in that they thought that what they were doing was terrible and they were doing it just for the money and they sort of detested what they were working on. Obviously, you don't feel that way. Are Have you run into people like that? You don't have to name any um, names, obviously. Yeah, but I have mean, you run into anybody like that? I'll, say the, I'll give the charitable version of that because I think that that's, there's probably some people who are just you know purely self-loathing and think that they're writing um, glorified soap commercials. I would say that um, the ch- more charitable version of an attitude like that is to say, you know, to not take it too seriously. Because at the end of the day, we are telling stories. It's fiction. It's, you know, it's something for people to watch and escape, you know, um, whatever's stressing them out or worrying them in their, uh, you know, sort of their regular lives. And so it, you know, I think you get into trouble when you take it incredibly seriously and think that you're making, you know, um, fine art. I think there are plenty of television that is fine art, but I mean, most of it is entertainment. And I think, you know, it's important to remember that's what it is, I guess I would say. Um, but at the same time, it's. So well, I was just going to say that the end of that thought is it's, it's never going to be good if you treat it like it's just a job. So you have to pour yourself into it and think about it at night and think about it on the weekends. And, and it should wake you up in the morning with ideas that you can improve it. But you still have to divorce that from saying this is the most important thing that's ever been put on television. Like it still needs to have a sense of, you know, this is entertainment. So for people like myself who read the New York Times style and art sections and for people who read the New Yorker magazine there's very much a sense that that pay cable channels like HBO and streaming services like Hulu and Netflix and Amazon are at a different tier than mere network TV in terms of the shows in terms of the quality do you feel that uh, that there, there feels like there's this sort of, you know, division uh, that, you know, that within the industry that people sort of, you know, stratify it that way? A little. I mean, it reminds me of the way that people used to talk about the division between film and television. It used to be that film was the medium where you went to make art and television was the medium where you went to make commercial entertainment. And now people are drawing that same line between network television and sort of cable and streaming. Um, you know, I just see it as there's different opportunities in different places. So you can do something very different on Netflix or on Hulu than you can do on NBC, both because of the nature of having commercial breaks and the nature of being, you know, on NBC or CBS or ABC or Fox, you're trying to make television for, you know, five or 10 million people. Whereas on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon, you're making something a little bit more niche so you can afford to be a little bit slower with your storytelling you can be afford to be a little bit more esoteric you can afford to be a little bit edgier um you don't have and especially those places that aren't advertiser driven that's another big consideration is you don't have to worry about certain aspects of the content that could run into problems but i i mean i've mostly worked on broadcast and network television say fuck, right <laughs> you can actually um yes you can on most of those places 
Can you say fuck on this podcast? I guess. Yes, of course you can say fuck on this podcast. Jim places a high value on that. Yes, John and I had a, had a big argument early on because he didn't. He wanted to bleep out when people said fuck, and I didn't want. I believe strongly in freedom of speech. I, it's we're pa- we're past the age of bleeping out. I was just going to delete it. Yeah, very short podcast. Yeah, and then I regretted when I said it. So there's actually it's funny. There's there's certain like on on streaming. I think you can pretty much say whatever you want on basic cable. I think they have like rules about how many shits you can have. You can say everything but fuck on basic cable, I think. You can say shit now. You can, but you can't say I don't think you can say it as many times as you want and I think context does matter. And I it, it, there's a, there's funny stories about, you know, sort of uh writers negotiating with standards and practices about I'll give you back this fuck if I can have these three shits. That's funny. I want to build on what you're saying, Alex. You would think that the promise of digital communications, or at least the idea of the internet, when I heard about it, when when we were all in this dream stage before Facebook was selling our data, et cetera, we were talking about how it was going to lead to a democratization of content, and you're going to have, instead of mass productions, you might have a lot of little productions that target more specific audiences, and maybe they cost less to produce, but at the same time, there are going to be more of them, and they're going to target more niche audiences. And I don't hear really you defining it exactly that way. It sounds like that's what you're talking about a little bit. And obviously, Netflix and Hulu are not small players uh, anymore, Amazon. But I I guess I'm wondering what you think about that, like about the potential for content to get out there in a, a significantly different way or where we're going with that. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely where a lot of it is headed. There's a, I mean, it's a very complicated question. I'll just give, Netflix is an interesting example because, first of all, they're an enormous company that does a lot of content. So that's one thing is that you can call it democratic, but at the same time, they have a ton of money and they're making a lot of stuff. Their revenue model is just very different. I'm not an expert on this, but I'll give you what I understand to be the revenue model of like a, a Netflix or even like an HBO. On a network like NBC, primarily their revenue model is based on advertising. And it's then the studio obviously will try to sell the product internationally and make money there. Whereas Netflix, it's based on subscriptions. So they don't necessarily care how many people watch a given show as long as those people are subscribing to Netflix because they want to watch that show. So they're actually incentivized to create niche programming. They want to create shows that are for 14 to 18 year old boys so that they'll subscribe to Netflix. And they then also need to create shows that are for 48 to 70 year old women so that they'll subscribe to Netflix. And so they just actually want to create a broad spectrum of entertainment to bring in the most subscribers possible, which is a very, very different creative drive, I would say, than... I've seen I've seen that on HBO with with what I call kind of an HBO show standard, which is like there's always the standard, you know, sex scene, full frontal nudity, the LGBTQ character and or plot mini subplot line, uh, gratuitous violence. There's like these patterns that I see. John, you're behind the times because except for the full frontal nudity, (laughs) every network show has some nod to the LGBT. No, right. Of course. But it was the forefront of that. I'm saying back in the day and obviously yeah. Game of Thrones. well yeah Alex one of the big differences between to me between Netflix Amazon and uh, pay cable and even basic cable from the network shows is that a season on most of those ventures is like 10 or 13 episodes where a season for you guys is what 20 22 episodes 22 yeah, which is even lower than it. You know, back in the day, it was like thirty nine. So that's a that's a huge difference over the course of three years. You're making almost twice as many oh, episodes, yeah. and in some cases, more than twice as many episodes as a series would on cable or HBO or even a lot of the basic cable shows. And that's got to be, especially for a writer. And and for the people in charge of creating developing the content, that's got to create an immensely more difficult challenge. No, there's a couple things there. So yeah, I mean, on Blind Spot, we finished season three recently, and we all have made 67 episodes. Versus some of the cable shows I've worked on, they would do 30 episodes in that same amount of time. So yeah, there's a there's an enormous difference in the amount of content. I like that aspect of it for a couple of reasons. First is I enjoy getting to do a lot of different types of things. So on Blind Spot, we'll do all sorts of different types of episodes, and it affords you the opportunity to do a very risky episode or an episode that's a little bit more unconventional or an episode that's structured a little bit differently 
because it's not going to make or break whether or not people are continuing to watch the show. And I also just like the fact that we get to tackle a lot of different topics, and I like the pace of it. I like that the stories come fast and furious, and we just you spend as much time as you can making one break, but then you've got to move on to the next one because the, the train is coming. There's a whole other aspect to it, which is a business aspect. Typically, with a couple of exceptions, television writers are paid by the episode produced. So if you work on 22 episodes of television, you're making twice as much money as if you're working on 10 episodes. That's not to say that everything is financially driven. And obviously, I'd much prefer to be in an environment where I enjoy the people and I enjoy the, the content. But it's harder to make a living these days as a television writer than it used to be, because typically you're only doing 10 or 12 or sometimes a little bit more episodes a season if you're working in cable. So you're taking a 50% pay cut than you would have been if you had been working in network. So it's just a, a pragmatic reality that it's, it's you know, as you get hard, farther into your career and most people are starting to, you know, they have families and they have school tuitions and they have mortgages, you know, it, it, it's a lot harder in cable to, to continue to um, make a living. Now, the flip side of that that I'll say is obviously the shorter number of episodes affords you the opportunity to spend a lot longer on each episode. It affords you the opportunity to tell a more compact and sort of tight story. You know, if you look at a show like Breaking Bad, which I loved, that was a very, very tightly wound story. It was, I think, something like 63 episodes total over five years. So, Alex, I'm curious what you think about overwritten or overproduced. Is there such a thing, and what's the test? I guess, to me, it's just what's entertaining. At the end of the day, the job of a television writer and producer is to entertain the audience. So there are shows that are incredibly sparse and natural and super engaging, and then there are shows that are overly stylized and jam-packed wall-to-wall that are also equally entertaining. I love the show Scandal, which I think is incredibly esoteric and stylized. People on that show don't talk like people talk in the real world, and people don't turn act like they act in the real world, but I find it incredibly engaging, and every week it shocks me and entertains me. Jim and I always have a difference about the show The West Wing, which I was my favorite show and is the reason I want to be a television writer. No one talks like the characters on The West Wing. Nobody talks like, you know, not to make this comparison, but nobody talked like Shakespearean characters. Nobody talks like any of the characters in any of Aaron Sorkin's vast... They probably actually did talk like Shakespeare's characters when Shakespeare wrote. In iambic pentameter? Well, no, they didn't talk in iambic pentameter, but they probably used the language that Shakespeare used. What's the difference? But people didn't talk like Shakespeare's characters. Nobody well, talks but in there's a di- I mean, this may be a point because Aaron Sorkin started out as a playwright, and what works on the stage, which by its nature is stylized. Isn't that exactly the point? That it's a heightened version of. The stage, by its nature, emphasizes the artifice of it. Doesn't work as well in mediums like film and television, which present a more realistic milieu for the presentation. The problem with Sorkin stuff is that he wants to claim that he's writing realistic, hard-hitting stuff, but he's writing using the techniques of a highly stylized kabuki theater, so it doesn't work. He wants to have it both ways, and his fans, who are legion, tend to give it to him both ways. The best thing that he's ever written was a screenplay for a film called Malice, which is basically a suspense film. And that's where the stylized dialogue works, because it fits in perfectly for that genre. But if you're doing something that purports to be a serious discussion of, for example, U.S. politics, having that sort of stylized approach just detracts from what it is you're allegedly trying to achieve. We've already done an episode on the (laughs) West Wing. Let's not divert. Yeah, I basically, I Um, wanted to call into that episode. That's the the downside of the podcast format. Yeah, I was just thinking we should have had you be a guest on that. Mary, we get on that. Dial-in. <laughs> you can still tell us what you hated about that episode. But before you do that, I wanted to mention your show, Blindspot, because to your point about the creative possibilities for a show like Blindspot, a few weeks ago, and as you know, Alex, I do watch Blindspot every time it's on, they had the most amazing Blindspot episode. And I don't remember the name of the title. I don't even know if they put the name titles on the shows. I'm sure it has a title, though. Alex, you know the episode I'm referring to, and I don't want to say too much about it because if somebody actually were to go back and watch the episode, I think it would be good to discover it. It's a episode where within the episode itself, it contains a recapitulation of the entire series up to that point, a critique of the entire series up to that point, a parody of the entire series up to that point, and then a restarting of the entire series in a manner. 
manner of speaking, all in one episode. Very well done. It was the kind of thing that actually made me sit up and start talking to the television as I was watching it. I know Alex knows how I feel about that episode because I texted him like 30 seconds after I finished watching it to tell him how amazed I was. Do you know the name of that episode, Alex? We do a thing on Blindspot where the titles are a puzzle because the show is sort of a big puzzle show. And so all the titles every year are a big puzzle that if you decipher the puzzle, you get a second message. And so the titles are very specific and esoteric to the given episodes. We should get that and post the title of that episode. It's episode It's episode 14. The title is Everlasting. Okay, episode 14 of season three. So we should uh, post that on the website because I know that you can watch it on demand or something like that in a lot of cases. So if you've never seen any episodes of Blindspot, shame on you. I haven't. Because Alex has two young children to support. <laughs> I know. I've never even heard of it. You're not watching his show. But what beyond that, if you've never seen it, it's on NBC on Friday nights now. If, so if I started watching it now, will I? Un- if you've never seen it, watch that episode because even if you've never seen any of it before, you will enjoy that episode. And I think you'll totally get the gist of the show from that episode as well. Is it a show that you can just pick up in the middle? That's just my little commercial for uh, for Blindspot for my friend Alex. But it's a pretty it's a pretty serialized show. I, if you if you just wanted to watch okay. one, that is a very fun one. It's nothing like the show. The, the when I was talking before about unconventional episodes, it was sort of a very unique standalone episode. And then you, if you really wanted to then watch the show, you could go back and watch the first one. And if you like the first one, you'll 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 get it. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a unique standalone episode in many respects. So, Jim, what you're bringing up from Alex's perspective in terms of writing or in terms of meta perspectives on plot or on narrative, for me, those are all questions of, and what you were saying earlier about The West Wing and about audience and about plays, all of that for me has to do with audience and knowing an audience and who you're trying to serve. That's what I'm wondering about for you is how do you define your audience? How much time do you spend thinking about that? And is that something that's given to you or do you go select an audience? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. The macro level point I would make is actually that's, you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are debaters and former debaters. And to me, that was always the, the through line between debate and this, which is what I loved about debate was taking an idea that I found interesting and I found personal and finding a way to translate it to, in that case, it was usually one or three judges in the room who were deciding the outcome of the debate round because it didn't matter what I thought, it mattered what they thought. The similarity with what I'm doing now is I start every script or episode or storyline with what's something that I find interesting, whether it's extremely personal to me or just something that I think is an interesting theme that's worth talking about, but how do I make that palatable to a broader audience? And that's the job is to try to figure out what's going to make an audience connect to it and engage with it and want to want to know more. To answer your specific question, yes, I mean, I think you do tend to know a little bit about your audience. So NBC, it's a broadcast network, which means that theoretically we should be looking for a broad swath of the viewing public, whether it's we have a lot of young viewers, we have a lot of older viewers. So, you know, men, women, um, you know, sort of college educated, not college educated, middle America, all around the world, you're trying to do something that feels universal and feels at once, you know, kind of a very specific character, but a very universal theme. We also have research data about what our particular audience engages with on the show. So on our particular show, the lead two characters have a romance that dates back to the beginning of the show and the audience really loves that romance. And so we obviously try to write to that as much as we can. The episode that Jim was talking about, it was about this character, Patterson, who the audience loved. So we try to do more stuff for her. And then we have sort of secondary characters on the show that people really love. And so we try to give them more meat to play with. So yeah, you're trying to sort of please different segments of the population with different episodes. Again, it can be very different on a cable network. If you're working on a network whose core audience is 18 to 34 year old men, that just creates a very different drive for what you're putting on the air. You're going to be putting a much different type of story on the air than if your audience is, you know, older women. So were any of your stars uh, on the show known before they were on the show? Yeah, a couple. So our lead actor, Sullivan Stapleton, was on a show called Strike Back, which actually my favorite detail about that is that my dad uh, worked for President Clinton in the 90s. And when I saw President Clinton at my dad's 70th birthday party, he said that he was an enormous fan of Blindspot because he was an enormous Strike Back fan. And so he followed Sullivan from Strike Back to Blindspot and was like going very deep into the mysteries of the show in a way that was like made it clear that he had actually watched a lot of the show. Cool. And then our second lead, the woman who comes out of a bag in Times Square covered in tattoos as the premise of the show is Jamie Alexander, who'd been in action movies and had been Lady Sif, I think is the name of that character. And then the other actor that people tend to recognize is this fan favorite that Jim talked about Patterson, who Ashley Johnson, who actually played Chrissy Seaver on Growing Pains when she was probably four or five years old. Sure. I remember her. I remember Chrissy. And so she's been acting forever in a lot of shows since then. So that you're talking about Growing Pains went off the air like 25 years ago. 
Yes, exactly. I mean, she was literally four or five years so old. So she's in her 30s now or something, right? Yeah, she's early 30s now. And then, um, yeah, a couple of other actors have been in, in other stuff that people recognize them from. Um, we had a woman in the first season who had been an Academy Award nominee. Mm-hmm. We've had guest actors who people have heard of and you would recognize. So do you hang out with all these people <laughs> uh, when you're working on these shows? Like, are you uh, I used to go to... So, uh, <laughs> I used to, so the show, the show shoots in New York and we have a writer on set for every episode. And so the first season I went to New York quite a bit to produce the show and I would, yeah, I would hang out with them sort of after work or on the weekends and stuff. So did you hang out with Gina Davis? Uh, no, I was, I was too, uh, junior on that show to hang out with Gina Davis. I did, uh, deliver something to set once for Gina Davis and Donald Sutherland who were on the show and remember like they asked me some follow-up question that i was not qualified to answer so i, I kind of got that deer in headlights look that i was very worried are you over that are do you are you impressed anymore by actors and actresses there's people that i'm yeah i mean there's people that i'm in awe of because i'm you know impressed by their um you know talent or resume but i think you can't get starstruck if you're on the job i still will get starstruck when i see somebody out you know at a restaurant because i still have that sort of giddiness of so who's the most famous person in Hollywood that you've ever actually had a conversation, conversation with? Conversation, a good question. You know, like not just saw on the street, but actually talked to. Do you get invited to cool parties? <laughs> Peg is now getting down to the nitty gritty. <laughs> Peg wants to come to L.A. and come to parties. Peg, Peg wants to go anywhere and go to a party. The first party that I went to in L.A. was at Mark Price's house. Mark Price played Skippy on Family Ties. And I was like incredibly oh. starstruck at the, at the time because that was like the coolest thing in the world when I was 22. No, I don't. I don't generally leave my house out after about eight so no i don't typically go to parties because you have two small children but do you get invited probably not i'm gonna say that it's going to my spam filter so in other words can peg go in your place (laughs) to these parties that's the real most of the time you can just kind of if you look where like you know where you're going and especially if you're wearing sunglasses you can pretty much show up anywhere and nobody's gonna ask any questions oh i've got the perfect sunglasses i didn't answer your famous person question i've got to think about that one i'm gonna you have to you have these meetings about potential shows and stuff like that. I mean, is George Clooney still considered like the biggest name in Hollywood these days? I don't even know who the biggest name in Hollywood is. He's up there, yeah, I would say. While you're thinking about that, I want to go in a completely and utterly different direction. I know you know. Uh, naturally, you do, John. You want Alex to know how he can save the podcast. And what we can do to grow our no, I just audience, I just right? I just genuinely want to. I was thinking about what can I talk to Alex about that I genuinely want to know from him, and I and I'm curious after he's. So been, this is where you're going to ask him whether Netanyahu should resign. Is that what you're going to ask him? Well, that's along the lines I'm going on. I mean, Hollywood is making a lot more money, and I feel like I hear this all the time. I'm in Shanghai. I see the amount of U.S. entertainment coming out of Hollywood that's here, and it's everywhere. And admittedly, there's obviously intellectual property problems because I can still walk down the block to a video store, go in, and not go in a back room, but walk in and buy for a very cheap price – DVDs of things that are coming out like now. So I know there's a lot of fraud that's all over China. I know they don't have a handle on it for sure. But I also know that the audience is big because I can go to a major movie theater and I can see any every single Hollywood film. I can see it here and it's all in English. They have Chinese subtitles, but it's everywhere. And I know you know Alex Joseph soft Nye power. from Harvard in, in, nine, in 1990 when he coined the term soft power. Certainly Hollywood has represented for the rest of the world a major source of soft, soft power for America. People like like America because it, there's some kind of cool cultural dream that people can live out. And I hear questions all the time about this from other people in Shanghai. Is, I this, is this actually leading to a question? I know President <laughs> Trump just nominated John Bolton, who's a big fan of American hard power to be a position that I know you're familiar with. And I'm curious how much audiences outside the U.S. come up in your conversations about these shows versus how much Hollywood is still belly gazing and waiting to see if we're putting it out there and then see if it catches on abroad. Uh, there's a bunch of different aspects. So in other words, you're saying, how does John Bolton connect to video piracy in China? That's the question? No, the because question... that's what I got out of that thing you just said. I think John Bolton would make an amazing Hollywood actor. He's got that very distinct mustache. He could be in a lot of, uh, you know, Westerns. He does have the great mustache. It, so there's a couple of different things. There's the sort of commercial and financial aspect of what you're talking about, just in terms of how much the international business drives what people do in Hollywood. And I would say that's an enormous part of the question. So on the film side of things, the reason that there are so many enormous tentpole movies, you know, relates to a number of things, marketing and publicity, but it's largely because those movies do incredibly well internationally. And the niche movies that used to get made even like 10, 15 
years ago, don't get made because those movies don't sell as well. And you need to be able to sell your movie internationally to those markets to make your money back. And in television, it's the same thing. Shows like Blindspot and Blacklist and some of the bigger flashy shows on American television, they sell incredibly well to international markets. And so what's interesting is most television shows now are profitable before they've aired a single episode because they've, they've sold the show internationally and, and sort of made their money back. And then in terms of the creative, it drives it a little bit in the sense that we hear from, like because of Twitter and Facebook, you can hear from your international audience, you know what they're engaging with and you know what they might like. We shoot a lot internationally on our show. We'll shoot in, we've shot in Thailand and Barcelona and Morocco um, just to give the show a little bit of an international flavor. But then that I think helps engage those audiences when we go to those places, they get excited about the show. Then there's a whole other aspect of what you're talking about, which is how cognizant are people here of the image of America they're putting out there in the world. And I would say I'm actually, since Trump's election, much more cognizant of what I'm putting on the page and on the screen, just because this is, at the end of the day, what I'm putting into the world, and I want it to be something that I feel good about. So my show, for example, we have the opportunity to highlight stories about populations that may not get to be on television, and so we'll try to be more diverse with our casting. We'll try to tell a story. We did an episode about the refugee crisis this year. I mean, we filter it through the lens of the show that we're doing. You can't just simply do a public service announcement, but try to put stuff on the air that you feel proud of. Um, and I think more and more people are, are doing that, uh, especially on te in television. I think, you know, in film, it's also true, but I, because I know more television writers, I can say that more people are sort of thinking, what am I putting out there and what does that say about who we are as a, as a country? So don't be surprised if in a future Blind Spot episode, there's a subplot relating to video piracy in China and how it leaves a clue to unraveling one of their mysteries. Alex, one of the favorite stories you ever told me was on a previous show that you worked on, which will remain nameless so as not to embarrass anyone, that one of the executives came to the writers and said, uh, I don't really care what happens in this episode, but at some point in this episode, this building has to blow up. And so you guys had to work in blowing up a building into the episode because I, I don't even know why. I can't remember if you, you ever found out why it had to blow up, but it had to blow up during that episode. Do you remember what I'm talking about? I do. And it's funny because my perspective on that story. What's the matter with that, Jim? No, it's just funny that the executive said – you have to blow up the building. So My perspective on that has changed because I used to think it was sort of a backwards way to create a story where you say this thing has to happen in the middle that's exciting with the beginning and the end. But now that I've done a number of episodes and you, you know, and sort of have enough experience under my belt, I realize that that's, there's, there's no wrong way to start thinking about a story. So sometimes it's, I had this image of a last frame of the episode. And I don't know what the rest of the story is, but this is where I want to end. Or even this is where I want the character to go at the end of this season. In episode 22, this is what I want these two characters to say to each other. I don't know how we're going to get there, but we need to get there. That's honestly just as I think now that I've done it enough, that's just as um, sort of defensible a way to, to create a story as just, you know, starting at the beginning and talking, you know, sort of methodically through the plot from, from beat one to beat two. Because, you know, that's what people remember. They remember the exciting, interesting story turns and story twists. And if you think about, you know, who shot JR, you know, like, or, or you know, a big, big seminal, seminal TV moments, they remember the big moments. And so sometimes you start with what's the big moment and then you find a way to get there. Now, the problem becomes when you can't get there in an organic and real way. But if you can find, that's the challenge to me. That's what we're... That's what we're all coming to work for, is to find the organic and real and sort of authentic way to get from A to B to C so that we can land at D, which is the moment that we all like. The subtext of what Jim is saying, it seems to me, is that there was a time, or at least there's, this is another one of those stereotypes that you can blow up for me right now, which would be great. John, is this question going to last five minutes, like the last No, one, I'll keep it short. I'm trying to keep be... it short. I'm trying to keep it shorter. I'm trying to compete with you. <laughs> No, 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 more. I thought the subtext of what Jim's question is, is that there was a time when stories were written by a committee or that there was somehow the creative, independent creative thinker or the writer especially is, is having their creativity doused by being diluted in a pool of competing interests. That was not the point of my question. One of the stories, one of the versions of the story of the, how the, the origin of the Alfred Hitchcock film North by Northwest is that it began – 
and I say one of the versions because Hitchcock was prone to tell different versions of of how things happened to different interviewers. But one of the versions is that it began with Alfred Hitchcock saying that he wanted to have a scene where people were being chased over Mount Rushmore. And so he started with that idea and that somehow he and the screenwriter worked back from that to the to the whole film of North by Northwest, which is North by Northwest is kind of very much a sort of uh, let's put the person in peril and then get him out and then put him in peril again and then get him out and get him and put him in peril again over and over again. Alex, tell us about okay, tell us about because you hear a lot about this and this goes to John's point. You hear a lot about the writers' room. Tell us what the reality of the writer's room is and what the myth of the writer's room is yeah i mean so so it varies based on the show i'll just i'll give you the example of blind spot we uh have a staff of about 10 or 12 writers and at the beginning of a season so we're hopefully knockwood we're going to get an order for a season four soon can't say for sure but i would say I'm, I'm, i'm hopeful so we'll come in and we will but not everybody who works on Blind Spot has that deal, right? So some of the people would have to be. Well, that, so yeah, I mean, because I have this deal at Warner Brothers, then they would probably assign me to work on another one of their shows. Typically, this time of year, called staffing season, is when all of the writers are playing this massive game of musical chairs where they all, all, all the ones who are not necessarily guaranteed employment are meeting with all of the new showrunners and also the showrunners who have jobs to offer on returning shows. And it's this big sort of interview process. And then in the middle of May, when the networks decide what they're going to order. There's this extremely fast, high-stakes game of musical chairs where all these writers start to get hired on different shows and kind of hope that you land somewhere that you like and you hope if you're the showrunner that you get the writers that you want. It's very stressful. <laughs> it's an extraordinarily difficult time of year for everybody who works in LA. So, so just in terms of the writers' room. So we'll start at the beginning of the year. There's 12 of us. We come in every day, all day long, and sit around a conference table talking about the show. And so it'll be, at the beginning, sort of a big-picture conversation about where do we want the characters to go this year, what are the themes we want to explore this year, what are some of the things that we want to improve upon from previous seasons. And that conversation might last a week or two or three in a very big-picture sense, and we'll start putting... We have giant whiteboards all around the room, and we'll start putting up some tent poles about, okay, we want to get to here by episode five with this character, and we want to get to here by episode ten, and this is what our season finale is, and here are some of the episodes that we definitely want to do. And then you just start working on episode one and episode two and episode three. It's called breaking an episode. So you start with episode one, and you it's called break episode one, which is to say, as a room, for the whole day, every day, we are talking about what are the all the story points of episode one. What's the first scene, the second scene, the third scene, etc., all the way to the end. And you, by the end of that process, you know what every scene is, you know what the central emotional arcs are, and what the different interactions between the characters are. You don't have all the dialogue necessarily, but you kind of have a pretty good sense of what is supposed to happen. And then the person who's going to write episode one will go off in their office for a week or two or three and write episode one while the rest of the room is talking about episode two. But on a typical show, that writer's room is going all day, every day for the whole year. Certain people are peeling off to write their scripts and then coming back with their scripts when they're done, but the actual room is going all the time. There are other shows that don't have that and operate differently and I can talk about that if that's interesting, but that's the sort of typical... So, Alex, you mentioned the term showrunner, yes, which I find fascinating. So once upon a time in the history of television, each show had a producer and maybe also an executive producer. And then over time, what happened is those titles started proliferating. You see now, for example, a lot of times the lead actors in a series will be also credited as executive producers or producers. Some of the writers will be credited as ex- mm-hmm. co-producers or co-executive producers. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if a show has a regular director, that person will be listed as a producer or, or an executive producer. So Variety came up with, a t- invented yeah. the term to identify the person who actually, among all these executive producers and producer titles, is the person, or in some cases, persons, who actually is in charge of the show and called that term the showrunner. And that's a term now that's widely used to talk about so-and-so is the showrunner of this show and -and so-and-so is the showrunner of that show. But when do you think that we'll eventually get around to people actually be credited on screen as the showrunner? Well, that's a good question. And actually, I remember you asked me that a while ago and I did not know the answer, so I did some research. The answer is that it's actually in neither side's interests to credit the showrunner. Um, the studios typically don't want to do it because it's not in the show of management or the, right. The main reason is that it's actually the writer's guild who does not want showrunners credited because the writer's guild represents writers. They cannot represent management. They are a a, a union or a guild. 
And so if a showrunner is credited, all of a sudden that person goes from being a writer to being management and therefore really shouldn't be represented by the Writers Guild, which is an area that nobody really wants. So that's why that has never really been an official credit. It's it's always known, like if you if you talk about a given show, it is known who the showrunner is. The studio knows who that person is. The network knows who that person is. The show knows who that person is. There are other parts of a show anatomy that are a little more vague, and sometimes it's unclear who's doing what job, but it's always known who the showrunner is. It's just not something that's legally credited on the show. And the showrunner is often, at least initially, the person, the writer or writers who created the original right. show, correct? Yes, they typically wrote the pilot episode. Not always, but usually. And typically conceived of the whole idea for the series as well. As correct. The pilot it's, that's changed a little bit recently because, because there's more and more people who are, for example, a feature film writer who writes a television pilot and gets a television show on the air. That is a skill set that that person has no real history of. And so the studio might assign somebody to supervise her and come on as the showrunner or co-showrunner or if that then sometimes that showrunner or she might leave. Well, for example, Sorkin on the West Here we go. Here we Schlamme, go. who was an experienced producer director who did That's a different thing. So Tommy Schlamy was a director. Right. Um, but he so Tommy was he functionally shared the showrunner yeah. duties with Sorkin. Sorkin had creative control in terms of the scripts, but Schlamy did a lot Sorkin, of the other Sorkin, stuff that, Sorkin. A, that a showrunner did. I'm using that because some of our listeners are fans of the West Wing, so it's a good reference point. There are other examples of this. The point I actually wanted to get to is one of the dynamics that happens on television shows that are successful sometimes is that the star of the show or one of the stars of the show gains more power and sometimes if there's a clash between the star and the showrunner, the showrunner can be bounced out and replaced with somebody else. Mm-hmm. That's happened on quite a few network yep. shows. Yep, Roseanne was one example of that, just the one that's uh, now become topical again. Jim, what's your source of information on the television industry? I read. Jim knows everything about everything. I know, but I want to actually know what his sources are. I know. Why do you know about showrunners? That's why, that's why, uh... It's true. I do know everything about everything, <laughs> which is why I'm on this podcast. It's not because I'm lovable, for sure. Yes. Well, I want to know, Jim, why are so many of your former debaters in Holly doing Hollywood stuff? You're thinking about Frankie, and we have to ask we have to ask Alex about Frankie because I know he listened to the episode and he has to tell us a, he has to give us some feedback on the Frankie Web- Wagner episode. All right, so let's pick up where we were. Alex, I want to know something that maybe nobody else cares about, but what do you think about all these Hollywood mm-hmm. movie stars being in all these TV shows now? Do what what is well, I guess I have a two-part question. One, when people go to do something like you're doing, do you go because you want to work on TV or you want to work on a movie or you don't care, you just want to work? And then two, I'm thinking of something like that show Pretty Little Liars or something. Big Little Lies is what It's you're loaded yeah. with movie stars. Yes. Big Vastly Little Lies. Overrated. What in the world? Vastly Why are all those overrated. movie stars in this TV well, show? Well, it's funny. In television, you know, it used to be that I know. So, that so when I got out here, film was the yeah. was the more prestigious <laughs> place to work, and, and the place where all the money was, and the place where all the sort of glamour was. And to a certain extent, you know, the Oscars are still the biggest game in town. If you're talking about like awards shows, but because of the nature of what's happened to the film business and what's happened to the television business, which is a much longer conversation that I can get into if, if it's interesting to you, the talent has started to gravitate towards television because you can, essentially, the short version is you can do more interesting things on right. television and make oftentimes more money and than what- you would have in movies unless you're at the very, very you know big temple movies. Just to give you an example, like I think it was probably about five or seven years ago, the show True Detective came out and it was like an enormous coup that... Uh, it was like Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson, right? Is that, am I remembering that right? The first season that they did that show. That was like an, a huge shirt. That's a different topic of conversation, but it was an enormous deal that, 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 that movie stars were doing it. And then, um, you know, Kevin Spacey doing house of cards. That was an enormous deal. Now it's less of a, of a, of a deal because so many big movie stars, whether it's, you know, Reese Witherspoon or Nicole Kidman, all those folks are coming over to television because you can do more interesting things, I think, on television. Like, the movies, like, for example, the example I always give is Breaking Bad, which is, again, one of my favorite shows. I know Jim doesn't love it as much as I do. But that would have been, in the 70s, a movie. That would have been, you know, a sort of paranoid paranoid thriller of the 70s. But now, not only is are they not making movies like that anymore, but you can actually tell 67 hours or whatever it ended up being of that story instead of two. So it's, it affords you a lot more opportunity. And to prove Alex really does listen 
to the podcast. He had actually talked about this in conjunction with our discussions on our Academy Awards episode and our discussion with Frankie Wagner about the sort of sterility of movies today. That Your point was that one of the reasons for that is that a lot of the – the plots were a lot of the the stories that would have been movies in the 70s or 80s are now made into you know mm-hmm. cable yeah. television shows exactly. instead is it, that's right that's what your point was yeah right? yeah no it that seems like it's fragmentation of the market and it seems like a good thing in some ways you're going to get more better stuff <laughs> yeah i mean there's certainly just i mean to your point from earlier john there's you know in terms of the democratization of distribution like there's just there's more places to watch television and and and, and films you know like films now are going on netflix and amazon as their first run window if you come to shanghai and go on the subway the subways are massive here you know there's like 20 cars mm-hmm. long and it's they're always packed and they're silent and 100% of the people on the subway have headphones in and they're watching a yeah. show. If it's yeah. not a vision of the future, I don't know what it is. It's everyone is watching yeah. video. A few are playing video games. Everyone in Shanghai is watching Two and a Half Men. Probably true. Which explains why the civilization is crumbling in the entire world. That's interesting. In some ways, with such a proliferation of content, because there are all of these different channels that are producing content, in some ways, there's got to be more opportunity now for individuals who want to write for entertainment than there used to be because there was a time in my lifetime where besides the big movie studios there was three networks and there was only a limited number of shows out there you're old yeah <laughs> i am very old but thank you for reminding me pig yeah i recently i was i recently did this um it takes me even longer you know when i haven't had a haven't had a a nap. It took you how many episodes to, to get to that conclusion, Peggy? Well, cut to the point of what I was going to say before, which was just that there are... Now be like John and don't come to the point. <laughs> There's so many more outlets that are creating content. I mean, it started, I would say the real acceleration of this came, I mean, there was always sort of, you know, a little bit of, you know, cable in terms of USA Network or TNT that were producing shows. But when AMC hit with uh, Mad Men, yep. AMC was you know, a rerun network that ran old, you know, black and white movies. And all of a sudden it was the go-to place for this really prestigious show. Then all of a sudden, all of these other networks, whether it was, um, you know, A&E or WGN or History Channel said, well, if they can do that, why can't we? And they did. And they, they started creating great, great shows. And then Netflix, which was a DVD rental service, got into the business of creating content, which I think was always part of their initial model. But they really, they hit with their first try at it with House of Cards, and then they hit again with their second try at it with Orange is the New Black. I think my son William still has a couple of DVDs from Netflix that he hasn't returned yet. At some point, he's going to have to return those. But yeah, I mean, so it just created this incentive structure. So Alec, look at your crystal ball. Tell me, where do you see, in 10 years, what are we going to see? What's it going to look like? Don't know the answer to that question. I think we are, in, to a certain extent, a bit of a bubble. So in television, there are, I think the last statistic I heard was 450 television shows on the air right now. It might be actually closer to 500. I think that number will go up a little bit more. I think at a certain point it might crash. There's a lot of reasons the economics of that can't can't um, sustain. But at the same time, you know, there's even in the last two years, I mean, YouTube Red and Verizon Go 90 and, uh, you know, Apple TV and all of these places that you would have never thought of as creating, I mean, you know, Amazon, for example, is you would have never thought of as creating content and all of a sudden has dozens of shows. So who knows? It could continue to skyrocket. And if there's money for it to be, for these shows to be made and there are people to watch them, it would continue, it will continue to. I have a feeling that at a certain point there'll be an attrition where some of these smaller outlets can't continue to make money and they start to fall off. And there have been a few that have a couple of networks that have folded in the last couple of years. Um, but I would say it's going to continue to be this age of tremendous number of really, really high quality television shows. And then, you know, it's a lot of dreck, but for the most part, most of it's pretty good. And, you know, hopefully at least I'll be able to get to my pension before it uh, crashes. Pension. So Alex, do we know yet if Blindspot is renewed for a fourth season or is it still up? No. Jim, weren't you listening? We don't. We we will hear in mid-May. I'm very hopeful. And the importance of getting renewed for a fourth season is that after four seasons, traditionally, 
traditionally, a show can be syndicated, which means it can go to, for example, one of the cable networks to show the reruns. Does that still exist? Sure, although that's less less true than it used to be, because exactly, John. Let me just show off some more, okay. which is <laughs> there is a history of shows of what became fourth year, fifth year hits, because, for example, the original series Law & Order was not a huge rating success for NBC. It made it through its first four years. NBC was, for whatever reason, kept it on and had a certain prestigious volume. Well, not a huge rating success. After four years, they started showing the reruns on a cable network. I think it was originally A&E. And then the watching the reruns generated this new audience for the original episodes of Law & Order. And the ratings spiked to the point where eventually the original Law & Order episodes stayed on the air for 20 years, which is tied for the longest-running scripted series in the history of television. The same thing happened, the same phenomenon happened with the show NCIS, which was a very modest hit for its first four years, went into syndication on USA Network, and then the ratings for it spiked in the fifth season to the point where up until recently – it was year after year the most popular scripted show on television. So if you get through the fourth years, you can potentially get that big spike in the ratings for season five, Alex. Well, I hope you're right. I will say that you know that the syndication thing is less of a thing than it used to be, but it's not it, as big but, as it but, used to be. Uh, but I will say that you know just to the point that we're talking about before in terms of the, the nature of content changing based on the platforms. Not to keep going back to the example of Breaking Bad, but Breaking Bad had a fairly small audience. In those first couple of years, and then when it went on, I believe, Netflix, and people discovered the show on Netflix and binged the show, they caught up, and then they started watching the show live in, like, seasons four and five. Same idea, but... That's a a parallel phenomenon with the same idea, which is that you get it into a new outlet where people can watch the show. I remember, me personally with NCIS, I'd seen a couple of episodes of it, and I was at debate tournaments where, basically, since I was literally the worst coach in the... Basically, there was nothing for me to do but to watch television, so I would start watching... USA would be running, like, episode after episode of NCIS. I would start to get hooked on what was going on because you'd be watching like 10 episodes in a row the same as you do of course when you bin watch a show on netflix or something it then leads you to become drawn into the whole universe of the show for the similar type of similar type of reason as the streaming does. i want to ask a question about that this is a big discussion i have here i work with a lot of british people and americans as well and one of the things that british uh, the, the example i'm thinking of is house of cards which was originally a bbc show right that i think was only three or four episodes and it seems like in britain no it was three. It was three. It was about thirty episodes total out uh, in the U.S. No, in the BBC version, the British version was three. What they call three. Oh, series, thirty episodes. Three seasons of about oh, ten okay. episodes each. I believe that. Is oh, okay, correct. and it ended. I guess the big difference yes. between the U.S. and British television from what I've seen and from, from my friends that I've talked to here is that shows in Britain end. It seems like shows, especially these ones that are that go on and on and on, there's an, obviously there's an, a financial incentive to keep them on forever. But I'm wondering if you talk about, Alex, a way to kind of bring people down or end well a long-standing show or if that's just so off the radar because of the incentive to keep it going that that never really gets discussed. No, it's a really good, it's a really good question. Um, I, I think the best showrunners and writers know when they start the show roughly where they want to end it. The problem is you don't know how many episodes you have in between. So you might have a good sense of, okay, I want these two characters to get married by the end of the show. But I don't know if I have 30 episodes or 130 episodes. And that's where it gets really hard. And a show like Lost, for example, they knew where they wanted to end it, but they didn't know how many episodes. And so they ended up having to sort of stretch in the middle. And then eventually they just said to ABC, we need to know where we're ending this thing. And so I think at the after season five, they kind of made a decision there's going to be a six and a seven, and that's it, so that they could kind of pace themselves towards the ending. I've worked on, a, I think, only one show that, that got to write a season finale. Most of the shows I've been on have just been canceled, because most shows are canceled, um, which was The Mentalist. Um, and that was a really beloved show that, you know, sort of, it's, it had its enormous audience that really loved it. And as a result, the writing the finale of that show... I was only on the last season of it, but it was it was very hard because there were a lot of constituencies in the audience that wanted certain things, and then there were a lot of creative people on the show and stars on the show who wanted certain things. And the the great irony of season or sorry series finales is that it's the most important episode of the show, and you typically have the least amount of time to write it because by the end of a season, you're always very behind, you're very exhausted, and there's just not enough time to to, to make something great. I, 
I think that finale ended up being really good. But if you watch shows and you're unsatisfied by the ending, it's almost always not because they couldn't think of anything great. It's just because there were a thousand masters that they had to please and just not enough time to do it. Uh, just to just to correct myself, John, it was three series, but you're right. You're actually it was a little bit shorter. It was actually only four episodes for each of the three series of the BBC uh, House of Cards. So it was only to- twelve episodes altogether. Ooh, a rare admission of. I'm always happy. Incorrectness. Why well, did you watch it, Jim? Did you watch the BBC version? Yes, I did watch it in its entirety, all twelve okay. episodes. Which seemed like it was thirty episodes in my memory, but it was only twelve apparently. Maybe I watched it two and a half times, so it seemed like thirty. On that note, Alex, what do you think about what do you think about um, David Tennant in general? <laughs> Do you know who he is? I don't. Doctor Who. Doctor Who. Roger. I never watched Doctor Who. I'm like, it's a big blind spot in my uh, in my television watching. You know what I know him from is from Broadchurch, which I. Uh... Yeah, he's in. Why is he in both versions of Broadchurch, the English one and the American one, or the Canadian one, or whatever? It's the English and the American. Anyway, he can do no wrong in my eyes. I love him. I've never watched Doctor Who either, but I did like especially the first season of the original Broadchurch. And I liked a lot of the the American version, I think was called Grace Point, not Broadchurch, but it was the same show. No, they're both called Broadchurch. I thought that was, there was some, a different title for the American. You get invited to a party. But it would, they both did start David Tennant. The uh, the American version. Uh, you're... If, if Alex gets invited to a. If I get invited to a David Tennant party, you're for sure my plus one, then, then I won't go and you can go in my place. Plus zero. Yes, exactly. Minus one. Okay, thank you. That's all I want. I have great, perfect sunglasses to wear. Alex, how far away do you live from the ocean? I live 26 blocks from the ocean. When's the last time you saw the ocean? Last time I, was, I went to the beach with my kids uh, last Friday, and, but that's rare. I typically don't go to the ocean. How old are your kids? I have a four-year-old, and a, or almost four-year-old, and a two-year-old. Oh, that's a lot of sunscreen and a lot of sand. I don't blame you. Whereas every We're other expedition with a four-year-old and a two-year-old is very easy, right? The beach is a lot of trouble. <laughs> Getting near the beach is great. Going in the, going to the actual beach and in the water. Uh, today we went to my office because they've asked. Literally every day when I go to work, they ask when they can come to work with me. And because I'm on hiatus and they're on spring break, I was able to take them to my office and we uh, played with dry erase markers for about three hours. And it was delightful. Yes, I am correct. The U.S. version of Broadchurch was called Grace Point. So there's there's things that you guys do which are corrections, and then there's things where Jim just goes and says that I was right the whole time, and that's a whole separate category of issues that you do at the end of an episode. Well, in that in that respect, I follow the New York Times columns Paul Krugman, who every one of his columns is basically, I was right about this five years ago. I was right about this ten years ago. Blah, blah, You're blah, You're basically blah. saying you should have a New York Times column? He's a brilliant economist, I'm told. But his column is bullshit. It seems like it's out of the pur- out of the purview of this podcast. And I'm right about that, by the way. The topical- I have a topicality issue with your... Uh, no, I was just making the, the point that since you were talking about people talking about how they're always right. I have a list. I have a list of people that I want to comment on and I keep it by my little podcast thing. So when the chance comes up, I leap in to like mention this. I want to know if you guys are going to have an episode where... Where you just have Jim's former debaters come on and correct the record on him constantly self-deprecating himself as a, ter- a terrible debate coach. I've thought about doing that. I've thought about like that. Jim Gentilly, this is your life. Yes. So I have to tell you, Alex, before we sign off, we have to sign off soon. But before we sign off, I have to tell you that by far, without question, the biggest, greatest regret of this whole podcasting experience for me has been that I don't sound like your imitation of me. Well, one week you should just have me on doing only your impression and not have you on at all and see if people notice the difference. I I don't sound enough like your imitation of me. Alex began... Like a voice match. Right. Well, when I do one of the episodes, you'll fill in as me doing one of the episodes. Alex started this whole tradition... Of GDS of people imitating Jim Gentilly. So will you 
do a, will you say something as Jim Gentilly before we sign off for this podcast? Dude, you know nothing about podcasting. This has been fun, and I guess we should go before before Alex's children burn down the house. Thank you, Alex. This was a lot of fun and a pleasure. Thank you guys for having me on. I'm a long-time listener, first-time guest. It's very exciting to actually be on. And now you have an episode you don't have to listen to. Or you can listen to it four times speed because you already know everything. See you all in two weeks. We would like to thank our guests today. And in particular, we would like to thank you. If it weren't for you, we wouldn't be here. And we're always looking for new listeners. And more importantly, from the few listeners we have, we're looking for more advice and ideas about how we can make the show better. If you would like to see the liner notes for the podcast, you can go to the Two Guys website. It is really simple, www.twoguysinsearchofanargument.com, all spelled out. We'll have links to subjects and topics that we've discussed during the week. Today's podcast was inspired by Jim, Peg, and myself. Music was composed and performed by Ted Enley, and pre- and post-production sound publishing and engineering of all sorts was done by Mary Heinz. I'm John Heinz, and if you like the show, we would like you to take a second and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and anywhere else you're listening to us. iTunes works great. The more positive reviews we get in iTunes, even if you do nothing more than click the five stars, the easier it is for people to get to us, the more people hear us. As we've mentioned before as well, we welcome your mail. We will probably read it on the next podcast if it's humorous or interesting. We are always looking for new guests new show ideas, corrections, complaints, compliments, pretty much anything you have to offer. If you have any of those, you can get us by going to www.twoguysinsearchofanargument.com slash contact. You can tweet us on Twitter at twoguysinsearch, spelled out. You can comment on Facebook, Google+, or iTunes. On behalf of Jim Gentilly, Peggy Bennett, and myself, I would like to thank you for joining us this week and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for more news-chattering talk. Have a great fortnight.